Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Back Half, the New Statesman's Culture Podcast with me, Tom. And me, Kate. This is, I suppose, our back-to-school edition. Mm. Um, I can start saying that now that a member of my family has started school. I was thinking about this and Tracy Thorne wrote a column for us possibly a couple of years ago now about that sort of back-to-school September feeling. I haven't really started feeling it I this haven't year. had it yet. I don't know whether it's the climate. I guess maybe it's just not quite autumnal enough. I think it happens later and later each year because of climate change. So maybe it happens in October now when you get that first kind of like weird sharp edge to the mm. air and it feels like autumn and then you kind of suddenly start thinking about doing night school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I always want to do. I, know, I never Why actually do, do start it. start thinking about because I think it's the going back to school right. thing. It's like yes. if you are so institutionalised as I am that you yeah. kind of really enjoy going back to school, it's like, Maybe I can learn and, you know, do something productive in the yeah. autumn. I guess it's when I feel like making New Year's resolutions is ah, in September rather than, that's rather than January. Because you are wired into that kind of beginning of the academic year and starting something. I reckon it's people who liked school that have that kind of fresh. association with it because Tracy did as well. I tried to, what a song that I really love and Tracy mentioned in that column is by an English band called Stornoway called Zorbing. And it's about that September feeling. And I was about to put it on the other day, but I just couldn't. It's not, it you're not ready. No, I know. Right. I know. <laughs> I think it will probably hit in a few weeks. Yeah. Also, of course, at the New Statesman, there's the kind of MPs coming back to work thing as well. So there is always this sort of slight injection of energy in, yeah. our, in our planning meetings. Like, yeah. oh, right. Okay. Time to time for business. That's but we've work. kind of never That's stopped not. doing business. So, no. you know, it was a busy August. Yeah, it was a busy August. <laughs> What have we got lined up today, Kate? We have the new album by Sir Paul McCartney, mm. uh, Egypt Station. Station? Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> Station? We have the wonderful, wonderful new Polish film Cold War. And we also have another of our non-anniversaries. So, Kate, Paul McCartney's just released Egypt Station. Egypt so, Station? Egypt Station. <laughs> he really should have put a Does question, have a mark, question on mark on <laughs> I'm Ron Burgundy? I don't know what... I did read the story behind the cover and the title for this. And I think 
it's one of his paintings on the cover. Ah. And it was one that he just had. It's one from like a few years ago. And it was just lying around his house. And he was sort of looking around and thought, oh, that's quite a nice painting. (laughs) (laughs) He told this anecdote and it was a really, really lacklustre, lacklustre anecdote about um, naming and providing a concept behind behind an album. (laughs) But is it a lacklustre album or is it something rather It's a very long album, isn't it? It It's quite long, yeah. 16 songs. And it has some of these, uh, quite trendy at the moment, these kind of impressionistic little snatches of sound. Mm. Um, these kind of little vignettes. Uh, I think there's Station One and Station Two. Um, yeah, I'm not sure the I that to me smacked of like trying to reverse engineer a concept around this because yeah. it doesn't feel like a concept album to me. You know what it reminds me of, and um, and I I know this is my problem that everything reminds me of Glenn Campbell. But as he drew near to the end of his life, and various producers decided to like repackage him. They did these sort of strangely sprawling albums with these little kind of impressionistic musical snatches in the middle mm. called things like Billstown, Arkansas, which is where he was born and stuff. And then the songs had a much more kind of introspective tone as well, which he wasn't actually known to have. And mm. I think there's a bit of that going on with this, that when somebody is of such an incredible vintage and an import in the music world, then you there's this impulse to kind of go, okay, but... How, who is the real man behind these songs and how is he? And I think it's like you've got the Mojo cover here and it's like Paul McCartney faces his demons. Mm. And I, I don't Not know just about, Paul McCartney faces demons, but the real Paul McCartney. The real faces. Paul McCartney, which is kind of an interesting thing because I don't know if anybody cares that much about the real Paul McCartney facing his demons. I mean, he's, he's on another level from that musically. I think they're, they're just desperately on the hunt for some demons in this in this record. Like, I <laughs> I think the the question is: Are there any are there any demons? Because um, the the there's it's being pitched as a kind of an introspective soul searching record, but what do we what do we actually get? We get a kind of uh, an admission of kind of past bad behaviour. I used to drink. I used to drink too much and forget to late, come home. Forget to come home. But now I'm happy with you. That's um, a song called Happy with You. Yeah. I lied to my doctor, but these days I don't. Yeah. Um, so How, when did Paul McCartney last stay out late drinking? I can't. I can't really imagine that. But you've got a, you've got much more of a picture, really, of a kind of contented senescence. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, it, in the Mojo piece, he sort of says, "Well, I've got eight grandchildren now," and he says, "Granddad can't just be sitting in his armchair with a great big doobie and a bottle of tequila." <laughs> But he does have the great big doobie. We know that is Paul McCartney's vice. But maybe not the tequila. Maybe not the tequila. Um, Critics all over this because uh, they they say it's his most poppy, rocky album for a long time. But I think people are still haunted by the album of a few years ago called Kisses on the Bottom, (laughs) which was um, his covers of trad and pop and jazz and stuff and uh, the, the music his parents brought him up with in the 40s so right. some reason he decided that we wanted this album <laughs> singing old standards <laughs> but of course the consensus was at that point you know is he actually able to write his own songs that much nowadays is, is the create creative impulse gone that is another you know we were talking on the last podcast about ariana grande and the way that young particularly female pop stars follow a kind of um quite a well trod path in terms of reinventing themselves from innocent and poppy to kind of sultry and sexy and then kind of odd and interesting Mm. but actually male rock stars in their latter years have the same weirdly follow a same sort of formulaic (laughs) progress don't they in terms of like they all do this kind of rediscovering the music of their 
parents or of their youth, they all do those cover records. Usually blues, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You know, people like Brian Ferry or whatever. I mean, I guess he's less known as a songwriter, but it's a very um, it's a very useful format to go to because mm. it means you don't have to produce your own material if you are kind of stuck creatively, and then you can do that, and then it also ties in with your grizzled image and your aging voice and things. So it makes you sound authentic all over again mm. the and way then, you did at the start and then they all do something like this which is team up with an interesting producer and try and do something more introspective and and soul search yeah the producer being greg kirsten who we can't get away from this year who's done beck lily allen foo fighters everybody um and i thought it was such a surreal concept the idea of someone like greg kirsten who has a knack for being able to make people's songs sound like beatles songs mm. <laughs> as in the case of dave grohl to come along and work with the guy who started it all. And there was a quote from him, a Rolling Stone interviewed him and they were t- trying to work out what his songwriting process was because he's he's known for actually co-writing. He's not just a producer. So did he really co-write with McCartney? Does McCartney need a co-writer? And Kirsten said, sometimes it would just be him with a little seed of an idea and he'd ask me to help arrange the song where I could say, maybe that a section will go into that section and maybe you call that the chorus and that the verse. And I thought this is a surreal idea, like the man who wrote the second half of Abbey Road on his own and wrote Sergeant Pepper and Day in the Life and everything. The idea that Greg Kirsten is now telling him what might be the chorus and what might be the verse in his own track. Mm. It's just it's just so bizarre. <clears throat> he's in a unique position because he's he's not writing Beatles songs anymore, but he essentially invented pop music. So when you get someone like a producer like Kirsten kind of offering him an idea, it might be his original idea that he created 50 years ago that's being, you know, offered back. Well, you you were saying the kind of part of the genius of a good producer like Kirsten is that ability to kind of serve people their own dishes. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. But if it's the if it's the whole structure of the song that was invented by the person in the first place and they've forgotten how to do it, and someone else says, this is what you would do now. I don't know. Interesting. I thought um, I was having a look at the credits and I think it's, you know, Kirsten is a really accomplished musician, isn't he? He's got he's got a background in jazz, is that right? Yeah, bebop and jazz and everything. So he can improvise and he can play structures that somebody might have, you know, done on their own music. And that's why he sort of fits in. But apparently he was quite difficult to work with McCartney. So Kirsten would would have an idea and would have to say it to him two or three times. And McCartney would be seen to actually ignore it until the following week when he'd sort of start to work it in. So mm. it wasn't easy telling him what to do. He said he had to take a deep breath before like trying to correct him or criticise mm. something. That's interesting that he's allowed to be candid enough on that. But uh, so for instance, um, I, if you look at the credits for a song like uh, I Don't Know, which is kind of... Um, a sort of, I mean, it's weird with Paul McCartney songs because you just, there's just always a Beatles song lurking in the, because the, because the back catalogue is so huge and so dominant. Mm. You, I just find I can't think about his solo songs without thinking about a Beatles template, which is, which is really probably unhelpful and unfair. (laughs) Like this, this I kind of thought sounded a bit like a mournful version of Lady Madonna or something. Yes. It had that kind of like Lady <laughs> yeah, Madonna piano p- piano rhythm to it. Um, but um, so McCartney plays um, drums, bass guitar, acoustic guitar and piano. And then Kirsten plays Mellotron flute, clarinet, cello, synthesizer, timpani and 
something else you know oh like he's God. doing the whole everything he's everything doing the, the chamber yeah. orchestra yeah, the entire so the, chamber yeah i wondered orchestra. who did that flute it comes in hand in hand which is a very sweet little affecting song isn't it it's like i want to give you my heart i want to tell you my story um i thought out of the ones that seem to be about his kind of late life relationships i thought that was one of the most effective some of the others are a bit more like you know uh, let's hold hands and walk down the beach like we're in the Prudential ad kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's like musically, structurally, it's not particularly innovative, but there's a couple of weird songs on there. There's one called Despite Repeated Warnings, which is the most, I suppose, the most uh, late Beatles-y because it's multiple sections and it's kind of oblique I've written lyrics. down late Beatles on my Have on my, you? On my We must be right then if we've both decided on this. <laughs> and there's like some, some weird kind of, I don't know, walrusy kind of silly words like in our imaginary world where butterflies wear army boots and stomp around the forest chanting long lost anthems. <laughs> and you're thinking like, where did that come from? <laughs> why, you know, why set along the, the sort of the ordinary ones of being older? Do you have songs like mm. that? Yeah, I think there's, there's there's touches of that oddness. I mean, but then there's also kind of real banality in some of the... <laughs> In some of the songs, aren't there? I mean, the um, "Come on to me," did you come on to Ooh, me? Will I come on to you? That's gross. It's just like a, it's a sort of quite a dumb, dumb lyric, uh, or a gross lyric, depending on how you're looking at it. Um, and then, like the "Happy with You" d- does definitely go into kind of prudential ad territory. <laughs> the things he he thinks about are throwing coins into a fountain, a stream running through a mountain hearing a newborn baby lamb calling yeah. for its mother You're yes like, what? what really i mean like i'm pretty sure that um <laughs> in in primary school i wrote a better poem about <laughs> spring than than these lyrics um, <laughs> there's also a shade of um pipes of peace kind of era oh god yeah uh, people want peace, people want peace. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's got like a wingsy middle eight and it goes and it's got like a sergeant peppery kind of address at the beginning where it goes Ladies and gentlemen, standing before you, I know I've got something to say, which is basically Sergeant Pepper, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and it's uh, yeah about basically world peace and and ah oh, and there's another song which is very um uh, strange, isn't it? Because it's like a Brazilian um, back in Brazil. Back in Brazil, this is a bit like a kind of girl from Ipanema thing. Sounds slightly old fashioned to just do some like bossa nova and then tell a story of like a boy and a girl getting together in Brazil. A bit seventies, I thought. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't sure about that. I, I, I think that and some of the other tracks are almost saved a little bit by presumably little kind of filling passages that have come from Greg Kirsten. Where back in Brazil, he sticks in these odd little kind of quirky little middle eights and things, uh, little instrumental interludes. One of which sound does sound exactly like a preset on my sort of. Early nineties, yeah, Casio the Casios, keyboards. yeah, 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 the little demos, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then you could like speed it up. But it's quite, it, it, it's sort of, it, it at least puts it in a kind of slightly tongue-in-cheek yes. territory, which it's I'm not, sure it is. I mean, he is, you know, he is cheesy and silly when yeah. when he wants to be. So you know, I guess you have to you have to take it in that context. <laughs> so far, you um, kind of stands out on the record. It's it's not produced by Greg Kirsten. Ah, it's the only uh, one that wasn't. It's produced by Ryan Tedder. Um, Greg Kirsten was double booked and, and, <laughs> and McCartney wanted to keep on working. So he went into the studio with, with Ryan Tedder, who's produced, I forget now, but lots of kind of big mainstream, big mainstream pop acts. Um, and it's a real sort of 
banger described as a single entendre, <laughs> which I thought was quite good. Who said that? It, Mojo said That's that. Single Mojo. entendre. Single entendre banger. It's slightly lumpen. It, it is quite lumpen. And it's a it's got that kind of generic kind of late cold play stadium um stadium lilt to mm. it. But he, you know, it's interesting you earlier you were talking about like the songwriting process and he said he couldn't get on with Ryan Tedder because he was just sort of trying to make him improvise over a over a hook. And uh, McCartney goes, This is crazy. I've got a career where I've where I've been involved with songs that have meaning and this doesn't amount to anything. <laughs> you know, I wrote Eleanor Rigby and now I'm singing, I'm a lover for you, I'm a lover for you, I love you, baby. Yes, I do. But he wrote I it. I can't get into this. And then, so eventually he decides to kind of persevere with it on the proviso that he goes away and rewrites the lyrics later. So he goes away and rewrites the lyrics. And then what you get is, for you. <laughs> That's such kind of... a dark snapshot of McCartney's brain, isn't yeah. it? Just the idea that you might be sitting there tracing out some chords on the piano and you're thinking, I wrote Eleanor Rigby and now yeah. this is what I'm doing. Yeah. It took him two years to get this together, I think. Um, sporadically, so I think you know Kirsten had to fit around fit around his availability as mm. well. But um, so, is there anything that that stood out to you as um, you know in a good way? Um, whether were there any tracks you, you'll come? Back I did to like it? the despite repeated warnings because mm. it was it was proggy and it was mm. strange, and I think it maybe gave you um, a little flash of the the mecca that we used to used to have. But yeah, a lot of it is just a, a sort of. I mean, at least it's not at least it's not covers of jazz standards yes because the voice isn't that strong either I think mm. the voice is quite sort of strained in, in parts and he's not it's not like he can croon his way through pretty music either mm. so you, in a way you do want the oh you know what there wasn't any of I used to love his screaming mm. god when I was like five years well, old I found screaming. that really erotic yeah <laughs> The way that McCartney screamed on, well, you know, loads of songs. Um, but yeah, there's nothing, there's none Do of that. Do you mean the twist and shout scream? No, it's more like the, um, the screams on Oh Darling on okay. Road, that yeah, kind yeah, of, uh, yeah. where it's almost unrecognisable as yeah. him. I just found that very exciting yeah. when, I was, when I was younger. But yeah, it's fair. Yeah, I don't know whether you just can't quite quite do that anymore. There's, there's a couple, um, there's one song here where he's singing in a very kind of breathy, top of his register way that, that does sound That's hand awkward. in hand. Is it? Yeah. I thought that was quite sweet. The ones that the, the ones I liked, I, I guess, were the slightly slower, simpler songs like uh, I liked "Confidant," which uh, has a kind of Johnny Cash, Rick Rubin. That's feel the only to one it. he wrote completely on his own. Oh, really? Mm. Okay. And "Dominoes," I quite, I, I quite like too. Um, so a mixed bag. A mixed bag. Um, large, e- mixed bag. <laughs> large mixed bag. Large mixed bag. Egypt Station by Paul McCartney is out now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. So, Tom, we went to see Cold War by Pavel Pavlikowski. We did. New film from Pavel Pavlikowski, known to me mainly through um, My Summer of Love from the early 2000s, lovely kind of coming-of-age love story which introduced Emily Blunt to the world, and then very different sort of tone and register from a few years ago, Ida, um, <clears throat> set in Poland, um, uh, where, unsurprisingly, Pawlikowski is, is from and won the Best Foreign Language Oscar. He also did um, Last Resort as well. Yeah, which I haven't seen. It was set in Margate. Right. It was about the plight of refugees shipped off to Margate, um, and it had Paddy Considine in it. Um, And he's known for making very short films. Never more than 90 (laughs) minutes. He hasn't made a film more than 90 minutes. My heart leapt when I saw it was only 90 minutes. I I just think this is, you know, I recently rewatched Jonathan Glazer's film Sexy Beast, also I think early early 2000s, Mm. also 90 minutes. Um, it's just such a good length for a film. I know. I, well, I'm sure endless pieces have been written about this, but I don't. I'm not. I'd be interested to know quite what, how this sort of I think inflation, film inflation, has happened. It started it like even, early 2000s, yeah. didn't it? It was around the Lord of the Rings period, and then obviously, well, I suppose late 90s was saving Titanic, Private Ryan, well. Titanic. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're yeah. right. Late 90s, Schindler's yeah. List was the yeah. first like really long mainstream one, wasn't it? Mm. That was 94. But in a way, you can kind of make an exception for the real epics, mm. but, but it just bleeds down into the sort of mid-ranking films as well. So it's now become like superhero films and just, I don't know, it's just, even I notice with my kids, like kids' films, mm. um, there's no reason for a kids' film to be more than more than 90 minutes, but they're reg- regularly sort of bumping up against two Whereas hours. what he's done here, I mean, the, the, the amazing thing about this film is it, it is an epic, but it's a yes. very elliptical, condensed epic. It, it spans, how long is it, 20 or 30 years? I think it's um, it's sort of nearly 20 years. So it's, it begins in 1949, um, after the Second World, Second World War, and it's um, a, a trio of um, Polish people um, going around the countryside and sort of recruiting young people. They're, they're putting on a kind of show of folk music and, and song and dance. So they're recruiting sort of genuine peasant mm. peasant characters um, to do this big presentation. Presumably it's in Warsaw, is it, where they do the, the production? I, can't, I think they're I can't going remember, around. But... It's Victor is the, the sort of the main uh, uh, male character and he's sort of almost like a Alan Lomax crossed with Simon Cowell kind yeah. of figure. <laughs> he's going around the provinces and the rural areas of Poland yeah. trying to audition real country girls yeah. to sing folk songs, which he's then going to compile into... Um, a, a sort of traditional Polish stage show, but with a kind of uh, propagandistic edge to it. So he's trying to find the real deal to sing these these sort of beautiful old songs, basically. 
it's sort of slightly wrong for to me to start with because he's paired up with this woman who's who's kind of collaborating with him in this and and i sort of thought she was all teed up to be a major character and then she just <laughs> after they they're basically told that they have to kind of introduce the, the sort of state official says this is really nice but um what would be even better is if you just had a couple of numbers about land reform and um you know maybe something about stalin wouldn't, wouldn't be a bad idea too and then and then it cuts there's lots of great sort of edits in this film it cuts straight to like the, their next performance with this huge banner of Stalin being unfurled behind it. <laughs> and the woman who is quite principled sort of huffs, huffs out uh, understandably <laughs> after this. But meanwhile, um, Victor is falling for um, one of the performers who, um, you know, you, you meet very early on in the film and he identifies her as, as having something special. Mm. And... Um, but she's not the fascinating thing is she's not exactly the real deal that they were looking for. No. She's a city girl. Yeah. And she doesn't come she in fakes and it. she fakes it. She mm. doesn't sing a, a song about, you know, hoeing the land. She sings a, a Russian musical theatre number. And her voice isn't as strong as some of the amazingly I mean, it's such an unusual style of singing you get in this uh in this film that's sort of very hard, um, um sort of projected female voice mm. that doesn't break it doesn't go soft and hard mm. it's just this amazing I just it's almost like shouting like extremely melodic shouting and you get a, a sort of little vignette of several of these women singing in this style and then she's actually very very different she's much more like a pop singer yeah. or like a sort of silver screen star or something extremely beautiful and the actress herself Joanna Kulik mm. um actually came to fame at the age of 15 on a Polish talent show called Musical Metro. <laughs> so she kind of went through all this. And she, I've looked up the clips for her on YouTube and she has this very defiant, self-contained um, kind of demeanour. And of course, that's what uh, Victor in the in the film falls in love with. That sort of, you know, he looks, she looks him straight in the eye and sings, not that great, but is beautiful mm. and has this spirit. And um, this, the film is a love story between them, but but leaping through through decades and through locations from Poland to a possible defection to East uh, from East Germany to Paris and then back to Poland again. Yeah, I guess one thing the film, the success of the film rests on is um, how much you believe the the attraction or the chemistry between them. How did that work for you? It worked very well for me, but by the end of the film, I was wondering whether their relationship actually worked. So obviously the attraction was so strong between them that that was utterly convincing. But in terms, imagine if these were two real people, mm. and in fact they were based on his parents <laughs> who had the same names, Victor and <clears throat> Zula. Um, it, the, the interesting thing about it is that you wonder whether this relationship could have survived in happy circumstances, and the suggestion is that it couldn't, that it needed this constant sense of being um, torn apart and put back together, oppressed, released, for it, for, their, for it to sustain itself. So I didn't think in a way that they were actually a very happy couple at no. all. And I, I imagine that that's what, what the film is trying to say is that there are some, you know, obviously apart from the political subtext, there are some relationships that only thrive in their sense of being doomed and yeah. in the submission of them. Yeah, a more straightforwardly romantic story would have had the only barrier to their happiness being the historical circumstances yeah. of, so, you know, as you've, as you've said there, they're, they are kind of pulled apart by, um, you know, Victor escapes uh, escapes to to Paris. Um, 
then you know his return to Eastern Europe puts him in a lot of danger later on. But it's it is as you know as the title suggests it's a uh, it's the, it's the Cold War. It's a kind of there's a there's a big ideological divide, and it's actually it's actually quite dangerous for people. Um, but that's not the only barrier to their happiness because when they when they do come together, um, things things start to things start to fall apart. It's really um, as you say, it's it's based partly on on Pavel Pavlikowski's own parents. Um, her mum met her dad when she was 17. She'd just run away from home to join the ballet. Mm. Um, <laughs> and he was a doctor. He describes her as a kind of fidgety blonde who was always up to something and a little bit unbalanced. <laughs> um, um, so I think he's, there's a lot of, a lot of feelings gone, gone into it. As with Ida, it's shot absolutely beautifully. Um, Ryan Gilby pointed out in his review for us the other, the other week, it's, shot in this thing called Academy Ratio. Right. Um, um, yeah, Ryan pointed this out. Yeah. Um, um, it's shot in this thing called Academy Ratio, which is um, square rather than rather than kind of landscape. Um, and he made the point that this kind of oddly makes everything feel quite, even when you're seeing kind of big, beautiful landscapes, they feel quite kind of constrained and, mm. and hemmed in. Um, and as you say, it's it's edited in this in this way that you... Um, you can jump forward kind of two or three years and and you don't have to do the sort of tedious thing of filling in. Your mind just fills in the gaps. Yeah. It's, it's kind of got a nice but, well, I thought stop. I found that so discombobulating at first because I thought it was going to be more of a straightforward romance. So when we cut several years and he's in Paris and they've both married other people, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it sort of really threw me because I thought, ah, but it's so clever because they they made an agreement to meet in a particular place to defect she didn't turn up yes. she's the one who and and yeah. know, both of them at certain points are the ones who mess the relationship up it's not the political structure around them i mean it probably is on a sort of much deeper psychological level but they're the ones who are jeopardizing themselves and there's a very sort of sad um protracted scene in paris where you've actually got the two of them uh with happiness within their grasp if they want it because they're mm. free. And actually the relationship flops. Mm. He's he's bored of her. He's dismissive. He's irritated. She's drinking too much. There's an amazing scene where she's dancing to rock around the clock and it sort of represents, you know, the Western freedom and everything. And, and it, for them, it's just completely, it doesn't work. Yeah. So they both go back to Poland. Yeah. <laughs> But one of the greatest, himself. like one of the greatest of these edits you're talking about is that suddenly he's in jail yeah. with a shaved head and he's got a sentence of 15 years and she goes to visit him and she goes, I'll get you out of here. And the next minute he's out again, <laughs> his hair's grown back, yeah. he's fine, he's working. <laughs> you never find out how. I love that rock around the clock scene. And and the stuff in Paris is is great. And they have the most um the most textbook sort of Parisian apartment, don't they? Like <laughs> a garret. Kind of, yeah. A garret with the bed, kind of with this big window looking out. It's kind of just it screams doomed romance <laughs> and he chain smokes through the whole thing as yeah. well, which kind of which kind of adds to that one of the recurring motifs is the the staging of the the folk songs that, yes. that go throughout it and i thought it was telling that he you know when they when he goes back to poland he actually goes to see her performing still years later performing the same songs and she has this extremely sad expression on her face they all do when they're when they're performing this particular song two hearts four eyes i think it's called and 
he there's a kind of corner of a, a curl of a smile on his lips and she's just looking deeply sad and glassy eyed like a strange doll and stuff and that kind of represented for me how their relationship only works within the oppression mm. <laughs> he needs to be it to be back like that with her on the stage and him the musician watching it and then mm. the relationship's fine but it's worth saying something about about the music um the um did i actually write down the name of the the guy who did the music? I don't think Mit- I did. We we tried to work out how to pronounce his name. It was um, Mitsan or something. Or- <laughs> oh, Ma- Martin Mazeki. Martin, Martin Mazeki. Okay, so um, he's the musician who who did all the arrangements. So this this song that you mentioned, um, Two Hearts, goes through various iterations. It's the kind of cornerstone of the of the the folk performance, which was in fact based on a real folk troupe. That performed in Poland um, in the late forties and, and kept kept going throughout the twentieth century. And indeed, you found a clip on YouTube from sort of two thousand or something with, with incredibly similar yeah. costumes, costumes staging, and staging. Everything. But they they're smiling. Yeah. So it, he's definitely tweaked it yeah. for the purposes yeah. of the drama because yeah. they just have those. I mean, I saw some um, uh, Russian folk singers in in Moscow last year for the the May Day parade, and it was the same thing. It's all very kind of rosy cheeks dundle type look yeah. and then big fixed smile even yeah. though they may be singing about you know devastating events <laughs> or politically couched sort of things mm. you know yeah the 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 tone of uh the tone of i mean they do do some kind of quite jolly dances but otherwise the tone of the folk songs is pretty pretty bleak generally i mean that is kind of that's most most folk songs a lot mm. english folk songs are pretty pretty much like that as well but yes yeah, so this song goes through when they come, when they're both in Paris, they end up doing this jazz arrangement of it, which she sings in a club. Then it's translated into French, and she she records it and makes a makes a record out of it. So it goes through all these different iterations, and and it's really it's really beautifully done. Apparently, this guy Martin Mazeki was actually considered for the role of Victor originally. Wow. Yeah, the the real the real musician. I'm not sure why um, why he didn't get it in the end. Maybe um, he wasn't good looking enough or maybe <laughs> what did you what did you think of victor oh i did, thought that i was totally convinced by were, the sexual chemistry right. between them all the way through what um, did you think well yeah no i i thought it worked claire and um, my wife claire kind of uh didn't couldn't really couldn't really see what he had going oh going for him, yeah 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 i wasn't so interested in him but the hair. two of them together yeah. i could get yeah. definitely um there was a lot of snogging like endless snogging he's there? called thomas cat mm. uh, or thomas cats i can't remember and um he was apparently uh, in the running for the Bond villain in the in the Danny Boyle Bond film, which now is not happening because Danny Boyle's pulled out. Of it, so. <laughs> uh, but I can kind of see, I can see that. I think. Yes, I, th- I can. I think he would make a good, um, in a kind of Mads Mikkelsen way, he'd, he'd make a good, um, good Bond villain. Um, <laughs> I loved her defiance and her honesty. There's this yeah. great scene in the, um, they're lying in a field and she says, I will be with you till the ends of the earth, but I've been ratting on you. <laughs> she just <laughs> casually discloses she's been informing on his whereabouts and spying on him. And then she throws herself into a river and just floats but, down yeah, it singing. Just like yeah. That was my favourite moment in the whole film. That, that is a brilliant scene. It'd be interesting <laughs> to see how this is... Um, received in in Poland if we ever if we ever find mm. out he's he kind of made his career Pavel Pawlikowski made his career over here and then with Ida returned to Poland and that film because that film explores the holocaust and guilt and polish guilt about collaboration in the holocaust and polish antisemitism 
that film got a hell of a lot of pushback in in Poland mm. and um you know the the this quite right wing party which has come to the fore in Poland um when they they eventually they showed it on television but with a kind of denouncement in front of it saying you know this is wow. this is an anti polish film basically um and they passed this law earlier this year that makes it a um, an offense to ascribe any polish guilt you know to to talk about polish concentration camps mm. rather than nazi concentration mm. camps or, yeah, yeah. or to ascribe to imply or ascribe any any polish guilt so it's landed him in a huge mm. amount of political political hot water that so i i don't know whether you know he was feeling more more careful w- with this mm. or not i mean I and mean, you could read it that way but i think maybe the appeal of it because it has it has gripped people uh, internationally mm. is that i can't remember when i last saw this kind of straightforward it's not straightforward love story but the the fact that the focus is just these two people mm. and it just seems very um classic mm. and and it's sort of you know it's not cynical about love it's no. not cynical about um uh the fact that there could be something that keeps two people bonded together emotionally for decades like that it doesn't have any there's nothing else like cutting in on that for me and i think that's just so unusual but particularly combined with the black and white it felt like a silver silver screen great casablanca mm, style yes. kind of romance or something so yeah well it won in best director at Cannes in may mm. so it's um I don't know whether it would be in the running for an Oscar, but it should be, I think. Well, they like uh, giving them to black and white films, don't yes, they? Yes, <laughs> they do. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, so the cold, cold, the cold War, Cold War, Cold War uh, by Pavel Pavlikowski is out and about. I think you might still catch it in the cinema too. And we haven't ruined the ending either. No, we haven't ruined the ending. Well done, us. Kate, for our non-anniversary this week, we are celebrating, and I do mean celebrating, the 21st mm-hmm. anniversary of Chumbawamba's song Tub Thumping. Mm. Um, known, apparently known colloquially as I Get Knocked Down. I don't, I, I don't no. think it's known colloquially it's as I Get Knocked Down. Known by people who don't know the title of the song as yeah. I Get Knocked Down which debuted at number two in the UK chart on 23rd of August, 97, and spent three consecutive weeks at number two, only held off the top spot by Will Smith's Men in Black. Ah. That's a real battle of the... So August 1997. Late August 97. So yeah. Blair had been in for three months mm. because this was a new Labour song. Sort of. It became... It certainly be- synonymous, became, isn't it? It certainly became a new Labour song. For some reason. With, well, you know... You know <laughs> I've forgotten what the collection. So in at the Prescott, yes, yes, exactly at the Brit Awards the following year, where Tub Thumping was nominated for Best British Single, what did they do? They poured a jug of water over Prescott. Yeah, yeah. Um, they changed some lyrics in the song to say, "New Labour sold out the Dockers just like they'll sell out the rest of us." <gasps> oh, of and then they poured a jug of water over the Deputy Prime Minister John Prescott. So that was. That was their kind of. It's funny how my, of... my mind has rearranged it that it was basically a piece of propaganda for them, <laughs> like the D Ream song. <laughs> I just thought it was like one of the ones. Oh, well, you to... thought it was a pro I just thought he song. used to just walk on to the podium <laughs> with this playing. But no, of course, no, they were anti. actually a political band. Yeah. Well, insanely, um, this was 
this this song was from their eighth studio album. Um, <laughs> so they were they were formed they formed in the early eighties, and they were a sort of anarchist band. Um, are you, are you all right for me to give you these Chumbawamba facts? Yeah, please do. Okay, uh, tell me tell me when they start getting Go on. getting boring. Do you know what their first LP was called, Kate? What? It was called Pictures of Starving Children Sell Records. Oh, and it was that a critique a of the Live Aid. Um, oh, my off's God. Live Aid. Yeah. Then, so they did various anarchist things and then they signed to EMI in 97, which having done a compilation LP called Fuck EMI in 1989 <laughs> was <laughs> understandably deemed by some to be a, a, a tad hypocritical, but very much fits with the sort of Britpop uh, Britpop story doesn't it everyone signed to emi in 1997 um and then had this enormous bizarrely enormous hit um which presumably is basically just because it's a drinking song right they said i think it was sort of uh inspired by a pub their favorite pub but then they said it was one of their least political songs mm. so it's great that they managed to make it political <laughs> for prescott they also said that when they wrote it we were in a mess we had become directionless and disparate well, it pulled them. It pulled them back together and gave them a, a few years left. There's a million of them. Aren't? Weren't there loads of them in the group? I feel like there was ten. Or There's something. a long list, definitely. Yeah. There's a long list. Probably a rotating cast. But they carried on doing sort of outrageous things, like pouring jugs of water over the deputy prime minister, and one of them in Melody Maker uh, said that they were happy when police get killed. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> How long ago was that? Which, understandably, that was uh, 98, I think. Oh, no, 97. Um, so there's a lot of tabloid tabloid outrage. Well, there's much that. more there than I thought there was going to be. <laughs> Thank you for that. I got one more. In the, <laughs> in the late 90s, they turned down $1.5 million from Nike to use tub thumping in a World Cup ad. Oh, my God. And then later they did do an ad for General Motors, but then uh, donated all the money to a sort of anti-corporate activist group oh, to launch a campaign against General Motors. I'm so impressed by these people. No one would even have thought it was. That's the problem because so much of this sort of very, um, very political music remains under the radar that nobody would have thought it was odd if they had put the song on a night ad. No. <laughs> it'd be I mean, just like, hey, there, there's that silly song that we all dance around to. They could have just got a million and a half quid. It's part of that sort of weird tradition, isn't it? Like... Um, Born Slippy by Underworld. Do you, do you remember, you know, you remember that period where you, at clubs, you'd just be people like going, lager, lager, yeah, lager. exactly. Like kind of completely unaware that this is actually quite a sort of poetic and clever deconstruction of the whole sort of. It's the two levels on which you can take the I song. Guess it's the always I guess it's like Born in the USA yeah, syndrome, yeah, exactly. isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, tub Thumping did appear on Rolling Stone's list of the 20 most annoying songs mm. ever. You've got more facts. No, well, this, this isn't really a tub thumping <laughs> fact, but I just wonder, um, do you want to hear what else is I on do, this list? I do, I do. So number one was My Humps by Black Eyed Peas. Oh, Peas. that's not fair. That's a good song. Um, then the Macarena. Okay, I agree. Who Let the Dogs Out. Mm -hmm. um, then it goes on Mambo number five. Oh, James Blunt, You're Beautiful. Yeah. Wannabe by Spice Girls. Mm, not mm. sure about that. Barbie Girl, Tub Thumper, Cotton Eye Joe. Barbie Girl's fine. I don't think Barbie Girl's annoying. Cotton Eye Joe, oh. yeah. it's an old song, isn't it? It's a piece of traditional folk music. <laughs> uh, that's it. It's over. It's over. No Let's more see. facts. What, wake me up before you go, go. Yeah. That's, that's this is a reader poll, so I don't know whether this is kind of Rolling Stone people showing off. 
Crash Test Dummies. Mm, 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 mm. That's a very good song. I, I agree with I would do anything for love, but I won't do that, even though it is structurally brilliant, just because it's such an annoying title. And when you were a kid at school, you, you had very rude ideas as to what it meant. <laughs> <laughs> it just intrigued and frustrated. Maybe you should write in with your nominations <laughs> and we'll, we'll, um, we'll compose an alternative most annoying songs uh, list. Yeah, send us some post, please. Not actual post. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Back Half. We've been edited by Caroline Crampton. Do get in touch at thebackhalfpodcast at gmail.com or with me on Twitter. Send us your annoying song suggestions or non-aversary suggestions. And Kate, we're not going to leave them with tub thumping, although you can we're not go, gonna go leave away you with and the, listen yeah. to tub thumping on your own steam. This song will not appear on the um, most annoying songs of all time list. Uh, it is Godspeed, and it is by Pistol Jazz. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.